Good evening, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keen, and I am here tonight with uh, author T.C. Parker. Uh, she is the author of Salt Blood and Salvation Spring, the brand new one, which is fucking excellent. Um, Stephanie Ellis, uh, author of Five Turns of the Wheel and Bottled. Um, three of those books I just named are from Silver Shamrock. Salvation Spring is is the odd man out um and i have a co-host here tonight eric raglan and and he uh just put or is getting ready to put out a story collection is it out uh not yet it's going to come out in september yeah it's called nightmare yearnings um and he's got one a story in pearl iscariot um and rich duncan says that collection is fucking phenomenal so Thank you, Rich, even though you're not here. <laughs> um, and uh, the same with Steph's books. I, I have not read completely Five Turns of the World yet, but I did read Bottled, and it's fucking amazing. So Thank you. <laughs> I, I, essentially, I have three amazing authors here. Um, and I think Four, I'll... counting yourself. Yeah, and a, po- a real poet. There you go. Yeah, yeah bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do yourself down. Okay. Um, so let's see. Eric, I know you're a co-host, but tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm going to take this in alphabetical order. Yeah. So uh, I'm Eric Raglan. I am a podcaster in Cursed Morsels, which is focused on short horror fiction. I do interviews and discussions about it there. I also have edited one anthology, or rather co-edited, Pearl Iscariot, Tales of Horror and Class Warfare. It's an anti-capitalist horror anthology. And then I've got another one coming up here that is similarly political called Antifa Splatterpunk that I'm editing by myself this summer. And as you mentioned, Shane, I've got my short story collection, Nightmare Yearnings, coming out in September, which is like queer, weird horror with a little splatterpunk, a little psychological horror some bizarro in there a little bit of everything and uh yeah that's pretty much it that's all i can think of for now <laughs> and we'll be talking to you about that book in the near future we're going to have eric yes. on um and then so you know your alphabet shane nat your turn <laughs> excellent <laughs> i'm glad somebody does jesus <laughs> <laughs> So I, hi, I'm Nat and I write as T.C. Parker. Um, I've written a bunch of quite eclectic stuff, I suppose. Um, so I wrote Salt Blood, which is a kind of, um, I suppose, a dystopian horror thriller type affair. Um, a Press of Feathers, which is a much more sort of British, I suppose, kind of more straight horror um, in the straight very much in the in the sense that it's just horror rather than there aren't any dykes in it because there are always dykes and things I write, let's face it. Um, and Salvation Spring, which uh, Shane already mentioned, which is a kind of weird Western kind of. <laughs> um, and also um, three, what's well, sort of a crime trilogy? Um, well, currently yeah. a trilogy. It's, um, uh, Salvation Spring is uh, actually the genre is Parkerian because <laughs> it's different than anything I've ever fucking read. Yeah, you're <laughs> so, getting your own adjective yeah. here. Yep. <laughs> I still I'm still trying to work out exactly I mean weird is just my kind of default now in terms of describing it to people but I just 
yeah, I have no generic classification. And every time I try, it seems to just make people feel cheated. So I think like, <laughs> best avoiding genre altogether when I discuss well, it. Uh, all I can say is read the fucking thing. <laughs> but suffice to say, it is in the desert. So if you like that kind of thing, you know, it's <laughs> desert-based horror. That is admittedly um, why I put it on my, my Goodreads. It's like, ooh, spooky desert story. Adding it to my Goodreads. Mm. nice see yeah it's the desert it's always the desert but i think people going into it expecting essentially kind of a splatter western may feel cheated so apologies in advance for that um but also uh, just the other thing is i I do also write crime um but i um yeah so i've written a a crime trilogy basically the uh the debt the push and the remembrance which very few people have read sadly but staff has they should all read it they should all read it it's really good um yeah i didn't know that so um i'm gonna unfuck that Oh. It'd be like just a few, if just a few people on Fox, I think that'd be. Good. <laughs> Sorry, anyway, over to Steph. Well, let's fucking I keep fix plugging that. it. <laughs> um, you do, I love that. It's making me deliriously happy. It's like every time I close my eyes, I can imagine it as just a kind of a BBC slightly post-watershed Sunday night drama. It Sorry, should anyway. be. It would be, be perfect. It would be perfect for that. And if I see anybody asking for that sort of thing, I'll push them in your direction. Woo-hoo! Yes, <laughs> it's, it's finding the contacts though. As I say, it is it is really good, and it does deserve a home on telly. So if anyone's listening, offer it a home. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> offer offer all of their books a home. Um, <laughs> as far as uh, as far as film work goes, um, was that were you finished, Nat? I, I am done. Yep, I am done. Okay. I don't want to cut okay. you off. So I, I cut people off all the fucking time, though. I don't know why I apologize about that. That's fine. Honestly, I'm happy to just keep on talking anyway. So <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, that's my problem, too. It's like, uh, is he going to let us talk? <laughs> uh, Stephanie. Steph, please. Steph. Um, yeah, I use Stephanie uh, for my writing name. But Steph, when you mm. talk to me, Stephanie was always when I was getting told off by my dad. Uh, no, <laughs> I knew I, I was in trouble that. then. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, Shane I, <laughs> yeah, I write dark fiction, horror, uh, a variety. I've published with Silver Shamrock, Five Turns of the Wheel. That's uh, folk horror, dark fantasy, and Bottled, which is a novella, a gothic novella. Um, I recently signed a contract with them for six books, uh, two per year, one novel and one novella. I thought I'd sent them these other novels I'd written and I was waiting patiently half of last year for a decision and then discovered that I actually hadn't sent them. Oh no. <laughs> but they, they, are, they, are with, they are with Ken now. Because um, when I asked him, he, you know, he was offering me the contract. He said, oh, have you got any more books? I said, yeah, have you decided? He went, oh, have I missed? So he went to look at his emails and he never received them. But I'd put on my spreadsheet that I'd actually sent them. So that's a bit of a senior moment, but he's got them now. So I've got those to write. I've got a collection coming out in June, um, As the Wheel Turns, which are short stories based in the same world as The Five Turns. Which is amazing, um, by the way, just as a uh, sidebar. Everybody should read it. It's fucking uh, awesome. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I do bought. like that world. I can have fun there. <laughs> Steph sent it to me and I can't wait to get into it, but I have to finish the other one first. Yeah. Um, what else? I've got, a, so I've got a few shorts coming out. I'm in Far From Home, the Off Limits anthology that's just come out. 
There's oh, something oh. coming out in September that I'm not allowed to say yet. Um, there is a certain Weird Tales anthology coming out later this year with, I believe, a Shane Keen mm-hmm. in there who may have or may not have done a Weird Pig poem, <laughs> <laughs> which is very good. Um, yeah, so that's it. There's quite a few things on the go this year, things I've got to do for next year. And I'm working on a follow-up to Five Turns at the moment and having a lot of fun with that. Awesome. You know what's funny about that pig poem is that everybody thinks that they're going to read something that's going to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was going to, but yeah. (laughs) And then trying to come up with a promotional picture for that, it was a bit tough. (laughs) I was looking at all these pictures of intestines and entrails and all sorts and... (laughs) It got a bit revolting. <laughs> I almost wish you would have used the, the not safe for work version. Oh no! If if you ever watch Behemoth's um, video, Oh Father, oh, no, Oh Satan, Oh Son, and they do a take on, um, I think it's the Prometheus story, and he's against this cliff face, and the the ravens or whatever are coming at him, and his intestines are sort of hanging down. His front, and they just looked like sausages, and it was that sort of vision I had. If you're going, yeah, a bit of behemoth there. Actually, just oh. on the subject of intestines stuff, can I just apologise in advance for the story I'm about to send you? <laughs> <laughs> what story is that? <laughs> Spoiler. Just- just one of the ones for the anthology. I just I'm conscious that yeah. intestines. Oh yes, that one. Oh yes, oh yes, we can actually. Oh, that's something I forgot to say. Um, this other project I'm involved with, uh, Black Angel Press with Alison Fay, uh, sort of female centric press project type thing, and we did a Daughters of Darkness quartet. Um, oh, it was released this year. I was going to say last year. It seems ages ago now. We are producing another one later this year, and we were slowly sort of dripping feeding the names in but Ali actually said we could say publicly that you are one of them tonight so she said as long as I say every sec- every 60 seconds you've got to say Daughters of Darkness 2 <laughs> so it's you Daughters of Darkness 2 lots of intestines at my end so yeah it's you Kath McCarthy Lynn Love and Beverly Lee so um, it's gonna yeah. be quite quite a, quite a quartet in there Oh yeah, um, and so and several of those names you mentioned are also in the um, Far From Home anthology. Oh yeah, we that, get about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just for... checking my mail today for that anthology. I've been waiting for it. it. Says it's shipped, and I've just been stocking my mailbox basically. So I'm very excited to read the stories in there. <laughs> oh yeah, um, I think you know, especially the reason you see all of these repeat offenders and all these different anthologies and books, you know, people like Steph and Nat and um, Laurel Hightower and Beverly and is um, because they're really fucking good. So they get the sales. You know? So just FYI. Uh, it's, it sounds better than it is actually, because I have had a lot of rejections um <laughs> lately <laughs> so if anyone wants to accept me please accept me but at oh, the minute yes. you know i'm at please, the other end of it it's, it understand. just seems yeah it just seems as though you're accepted all the time but you're not there's yeah. an awful lot of rejection in the background way more <laughs> yes um and yeah and when i say 
they're selling the stories. That's kind of tongue in cheek too, because when you get paid, you can buy a bottle of whiskey and start writing another fucking <laughs> story. <laughs> Bag of chips. Yep. <laughs> Glamour. <laughs> uh eric i forgot to tell you man we're very rude on this podcast we just fucking interrupt each other at will so oh that's fine that's fine i'm a nebraskan as i've mentioned so my midwesternness might uh forbid me from interrupting too much but i'll, I'll try to be a little more like a uh, coastal about it i guess uh rich does that too <laughs> don't be that way with me i'm a rude fucker. <laughs> um so, sorry, I'm a terrible showrunner because I just like to bullshit, um, which is basically how we run this thing anyway. Uh, first first topic, because this applies to both Steph and Nat. Um, how do you like working with Kane and McKinley? <laughs> Silver Shamrock. Uh, yeah, Kenneth is, well, Kenneth Kane, he's edited Bottled and um, Five Turns, and he is brutal. <laughs> he's, very, <laughs> he's, he's very blunt if he doesn't like it. He gave me a list of words that I overused, which <laughs> he added to when he, you know, he gave me the list for Bottled, and then when he got to Five Turns, he added <laughs> to it, so I've got an even longer list. Uh, the thing about the books that I've sent to Shamrock now, some of them were written before those two. So I dare say that list will either get longer or I'll have this little tirade at the start of the manuscript saying, <laughs> what did I tell you last time? But he's, he's fair. Um, there are things that he'd like me to change for the American market, and that's OK. And then there's a few things that he'll say, look, I, I want to change this, but I'll, I'll say no to. Um, it, it depends how important it is. There was uh, a bit in Five Turns of the Wheel, which deals with, um, well, spoiler, but it, it was a miscarriage of mine. And I wrote the words in there exactly as I was spoken to by the doctors in the hospital and the technicians and he wants he said that didn't sound right it didn't sound what like like what someone would say but I wanted to keep that because it was what was said to me yeah, um, yeah. It, um, it's a very easy process we just we just back things back and forth he'll stick to his guns on something some things I'll stick to the guns on mine but others we compromise on it's a sort of mutual respecting so I've not found any difficulty but I do have have to get used to the bluntness sometimes but he is very good i will say that he's very good <laughs> yeah it's kind of strange um the bluntness actually is something whenever i have an editor who is like that with me um at first i used to like literally you know thank god that it was just email so they didn't hear me crying um, yeah <laughs> um, you take but, it personally don't you yeah yeah but you hit i hit a stage where um I actually thank them for that stuff because they make me better. You know, um, Kenneth, Kenneth honestly scares the fuck out of me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he scares me too, but he, he did a good job. And the book in the end was a lot tighter for his, his recommendations. He didn't agree with the ending from what I remember. He, he said he wasn't, 
he didn't quite like that, but he could see why I did it. And it, it was actually a different ending to what I intended because I was just going to wipe them all out. That's another spoiler, I suppose I should have said. <laughs> but I was, I was just happily writing away and they'd go around killing each other and killing everybody. I thought, yeah, and I sat there with a big grin on my face and then I suddenly thought, oh. And I knew I wanted to write about, write about them again, so I just swerved it and changed it. So, yeah, so all sorts of spoilers when I talk about these books. I'll just it's just ridiculous. Put I'll put a, I'll put a minor warning in the show description. <laughs> if anybody spoils anything they absolutely do not want spoiled, let me know and I'll mark the timestamp so I can get it out of there. <laughs> it's hard to talk about any of your books really without giving spoilers away. Otherwise, you are so right. vague; mm -hmm. it's just impossible. Right. I had uh, Bev Lee on a few weeks back, probably six weeks back now, um, talking about um, the ruin of delicate things. Yeah, I've read that and I listened yeah. to the, the show. It's a very good there's, book. There's no fucking way to talk too much about that thing without spoiling the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, a, she's, she's, she's like I am. She's pretty particular about that. So don't piss her off. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nat, same question. So funny enough, so I actually... Um, I, I, well, Sopla especially isn't a silver shamrock. This is, it's one of those things where everybody thinks it's a silver shamrock, so it's Keelan. So, um, oh, my yeah. Designer, oh, my cover designer is Keelan Patrick Burke, who is magnificent and majestic. Yes, and I just can't say enough good stuff about him. I mean, obviously, he's an incredible writer as well, but just as a, a graphic designer, he's fabulous. Yeah, um, everyone, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, well, I, I suspect the same thing as you. If anyone ever wants a cover designer, he is your guy. Like, yeah, he's right. phenomenal. Although, actually, just a separate shout out. Um, so for Salvation Spring, the Western that I just put out, um, it was actually illustrated rather than, it, it was sort of illustration yeah. rather than graphics. And that was Ross Jeffrey, um, who well, wrote Home and well. Juniper and various other things. And he, again, was amazing. Yeah, so Ross... Um, <laughs> He's so very actually, multi talented. Geez. Yeah, he is. I know. God, it, they hate him, but also love him. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's yeah, he's phenomenal. He's a, and he's a really great bloke. So I, he's yeah, he's yeah. a super nice guy. He just um, deserves everything. But yeah, so um, Keelan, because Keelan designs, he's actually done the covers for most of my books. Mm -hmm. It there is just there's this kind of overarching silver shamrock vibe about them because obviously he does so mm -hmm. many of those. Exactly. Yeah, I actually I have never met or chatted with Kenneth, although now obviously I'm terrified of him. So. I don't remember who I don't. Yeah, I don't remember who told me that, but someone said that that was a silver shamrock book, and I just went with it. Oh, no, everybody, everybody thinks that it's because hmm. uh, just because the covers, because Keelan's got a really really distinctive yeah. style, and I think typographically as well, he's got a really really distinctive style. He does. Yeah, I think Silver Shamrock is still open at the minute and Ken's still reading stuff. Yes. So I would really recommend you send to him that because I think he'd like your work. I think anybody yeah. would. Funnily enough, though, I I mean, I'm I'm quite the fan, as you know, of Black Angel Press. So <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got it. So basically, I because I'm, I'm a big fan of self-publishing because I so I run mm. I run my own agency sort of in. Well, by day um, and I, I love a bit of autonomy to the point of control freakery possibly yeah. but so I actually I really like self-publishing 
but I'm I'm writing something at the moment that's um what well, some of it's going into the dots of the second dots of darkness anthology hopefully fingers crossed if stuff likes it yeah but um it's it's a sort of it's a bit like you know that Josh Malaman one Goblin that's just come out and the the Alan Baxter one the gold you know the kind of yeah. interconnected novella thing yeah. Um, so I'm working on something at the moment that's just basically kind of it will be six interconnected novellas. And yeah, I would absolutely love to put it out with Black Angel. <laughs> so yay. <laughs> well, I've told Ali that. <laughs> Honestly, one of my favorite forms, possibly my favorite, is novella format. Um, Agreed. For horror. Um, and yeah, that those two books that, that Nat mentioned are both fucking phenomenal too. I mean, above above par uh, collections of novellas. Well, I think the beauty of them, you know, with the kind of interconnectedness, because horror, I know horror really thrives on shorter formats, which I find really difficult actually, because I just gravitate yeah. towards like 70,000 words up type formats. But um, Tell it, I think with something like that, you know, where you've got sort of a novella format, but you can connect them and then you can kind of use them to build up to a bigger picture. I find that somehow a little bit easier to navigate. So I, I quite like those sort of stories. I've not read The Gulp yet, actually, but I keep meaning to. It just, oh, I've had nothing but good things about it. Uh, Alan, I probably hate my guts because I've, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 I'm done. I'm done. Uh, Sorry, I you just... couldn't see it, but I was doing like a zipping my lips motion. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hazard of not doing video, and we're going to switch to that soon because we don't see the visual cues. So everybody's always stomping on everybody else. Um, and I talked myself right into forgetting what the fuck I was going to say, so somebody else saved me. Eric? Uh, yeah, can I jump in? I, I'm curious, Nat. You mentioned enjoying the autonomy of self-publishing, and it's something that I'm doing for Nightmare Yearnings and for uh, really both anthologies that I've done or done or am doing. And I'm curious if your approach with self-publishing has sort of changed over time. Like I ask in part because I know that there are things that I would do differently next time. And I'm curious how you go about your process with self-publishing. Um, it's actually, funny enough, I mean, I think the, the process, I don't know if anything's that different because a lot of it I've tended to outsource where I can't do it. So obviously <laughs> okay. So I have no design mouse whatsoever. So I've always kind of outsourced the design stuff. Um, the formatting. So I've actually got vellum that I use anyway for work. So I, the formatting hasn't been too much of a problem. Gotcha. Um, I used to be a copy editor. So I tend to write like a copy editor. So before I actually give it to an editor, I tend to sort of have done a, a, a few, certainly before kind of the proofing stage, done quite a few rounds of editing anyway. So that, mm -hmm. but then when there's, when it needs a second set of eyes on it, basically I'm happy to outsource it. So in that sense, Practically speaking, I don't know whether the process of it has changed as much, but I definitely, I don't know. I think my my love of self-publishing has only deepened. <laughs> like I, okay. I think there's a sense, you know, before you start doing it, you think, oh, is this something that, you know, I'm just kind of going to throw out into the ether and mm -hmm. it won't, like nobody will read it. It will be, it's it sort of hierarchically in everybody's mind, it will be received as something less than something traditionally published. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, think I think that's changing. I the quality should. of stuff is, is changing now. Well, you think about like Keelan, Keelan Patrick Burke, he's also a killer fucking writer. Um, he has self-published a lot of stuff early on. I don't know if he still does or not. Mm -hmm. um, and Nat, and these things, what Steph was getting at, then I interrupted her, I think, is that That's okay. <laughs> you're, you're expecting when, before I became a member of the indie community, um, 
I always thought that every book I read that said self-published was going to be a piece of crap with typos and, yeah. you know, <laughs> continuity errors everywhere. Um, and that is the case with some of them, but uh, not with Nat. Nat's books are perfect as far as I can tell um, and damn good reads. Um, and, you know, there are some people out there that are doing it and doing it right. Oh, there's some incredible self-published stuff. I mean, even somebody like Adam Neville, who's mm -hmm. just switched from trad publishing to indie, you know what I mean? Like it's, I think yeah. people are starting to realise, and also, I mean, just on a, on a practical level, there's so little money in trad publishing anyway. You know, if you get people that <laughs> kind of go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be a professional writer and I will get an agent and then I'll get an advance. And you know what I mean? And I think you have this, yeah, this kind of perception that you could be, you know, if you if you get signed by one of the big four or the big five or however many are left now, you know, you you have a, a, an established career trajectory. Whereas, yeah. you know, I know in the UK, the, the average salary of a professional writer is, I think, just under about 13 grand a year. And I it's, think it's less than that. It's about is it less than that? Christ, I mean, there might have been an older article I was reading, like, you know, at the you rate, just, yeah, at the rate I'm going at fifteen hundred a year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? What am I actually holding out for here? You know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> it's the prestige of people I'm not that fussed about anyway. Worth, yeah. no. you know what I mean? It's, so it's, it's, it's that validation thing part of it, isn't it? Really, you know, we yeah. all want to be seen to have been accepted by the the bigger firms, the bigger names that were up there with them. And so we're searching for that whilst we're still doing our own stuff. It, it, it's hard to have that self-belief. And I, I think it's the, the lack of belief that keeps you pushing for those other, other deals when you can actually do it by yourself. I think the self-publishing side, creating the books and things isn't, isn't the difficult part. It's the marketing and getting your name out there yes. afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. It just yeah, getting people to read it. And I mean, the other thing that I'm more and more aware of, I think, since having got involved in, especially sort of the indie horror community, is just how much stuff there is. You know, you go from certainly for me, I mean, because I've only I suppose been writing and kind of putting stuff out for about a year, and you you go from this sense of oh god, I'm bored as hell with everything I can see in you know sort of Waterstones or Barnes and Noble to oh my god, how am I ever going to read everything? You know what I mean? Like this kind of this overwhelming sense of there being these incredible books that you just will never have the time to read, and you think God, you know, I'm contributing now to this that potentially nobody will ever plow through. You know what I mean? So it's it is about marketing, but it's also about realizing that actually the competition's really stiff. It is, yeah. <laughs> But it makes me happy too. I I often find myself uh, delighted that I will never be able to read all the books that I want to read. It it means that even if I live for a very very long time, I will never stop being entertained and delighted and impressed by just the talent of writing peers and yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and just mm -hmm. I think just for, I think having as somebody who's only been you know, recently dipping a toe into sort of indie writing communities to know that there is that, you know, just the, the sheer volume of kind of original thinking and interesting ideas mm -hmm. and stuff that isn't necessarily, I mean, I, I like genre fiction, so I like an element of things being formulaic anyway. You know, I'm happy for things to adhere to a formula to a certain extent, but it's it's quite rare, I would say, and certainly kind of make the mainstream end of trad publishing that you find stuff that genuinely makes you think like, fuck, you know, that's not seen that before. 
Yeah. And then yeah. when you occasionally do, it really blows your mind. And then you, yeah. you dip a toe into indie horror and you realise that every other book you read elicits that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and it's incredible. You know, it's, it's wonderful that there are so many talented writers doing so much cool stuff. There is. Um, there are, rather. Sorry. Um, there is. I, going back to my roots there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing, yeah, that's something else you know i would advise to people is um make yourself known to people that you see in the community that have voices that people listen to like sadie hartman um she will never give you a good review if you write a bad book but she will always give you she will champion your work forever if she likes it you know and there are other people out there like that too so that's that's a one of the best approaches to your marketing first is to find people who love your work, support your work, and want to talk about your work, you know, because that's where the, that's where the best numbers come from is people talking about it. Oh, completely. And things like BookTube as well. I mean, again, the, yeah. the thing I was, I, I'm a bit of a late adopter when it comes to technology in general, so I was only aware of BookTube last year. And, oh, yeah, God, actually, yeah, less than a year ago. But, you know, people like Well Read Beard and Brad Proctor and, you know, you've got these kind of sort of indie horror booktubers who are absolutely fantastic. You know, they're really well connected, but they're also really versed in what's out there. Yeah. And if they like something, they will enthuse the hell about it, you know, every show. And then, yep. um, so Edward Lorne, well, Edward, no, Edward, not his name, but, and Edward. in fact, he's now changed his name. So he is actually the artist formerly known as Edward Lorne. But like he, I mean, these videos are one of the things that got me interested in booktube in the first place and i mean i love him to death and he's you know he's a really good friend now and we're writing a bunch of stuff together but to to have gone from you know kind of sort of watching his videos to actually talking to him to him now being a close friend in that short space of time it's it the relationships that you can form in the community beyond just you know sort of getting people interested in your work is is phenomenal and again that's not necessarily the kind of thing that you'd be able to do if you went down a trad route you know, where maybe yeah. you were seeing people at kind of functions and conferences, but that was yeah. kind of the end of it. Yeah. Um, you know, before I forget this, um, I don't have any any problem with E's name. That's Edward, the formerly known as Edward Lone guy. He's always just been asshole to me. So yeah. <laughs> I say that with love. Fuck off, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's claiming it even as we speak. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We, uh, Lauren and I have been kind of blooded together. We both have, we're both very opinionated people. And uh, we, about five, six years ago now, I think we alienated about 90% of Facebook and then quit. <laughs> <laughs> you achieved your goal in life. Exactly. <laughs> I'm to say, I mean, I'm not on Facebook, thank Christ, but I feel like you, yeah, I feel like you're missing little. <laughs> yeah, little, exactly. <laughs> I'm on there, but it's sort of just to keep in touch with, mm -hmm. well, there's family and then there's a few authors that, who spend more time there than Twitter. Yeah. And they say Twitter is a cesspool and I'm over on Twitter. I'm thinking, no, because there's this little corner that I'm in mm -hmm. and talking to people there and, it might be about books or it might be silly pictures. It'll be always oh, music um, albums at the minute, little polls that Steve Asalo does. 
and it's a nice place to be. I don't see any of the other rubbish because I don't go looking for it. And when I do click on trending things, I always tell myself off. But I prefer Twitter to Facebook where people rant and start, Mm. I don't know, it's, oh, look at me, this has happened, but they're all vague booking and you think, nah, I'll go back to Twitter. Yeah. It's polarised. I'm already hopelessly addicted to one platform, which is Twitter. So I, I really don't need mm-hmm. any of the others. It's too much. My life would yeah, be Yeah, I feel like, I, I mean, I've given Instagram a go, but I mean, really, there's only so many pictures of trees you can take. <laughs> I stick poems on there. I like trees. There's, no. a, there's, a, there's a site on Facebook, Unique Trees. Unique Trees. Follow that. It's really good. <laughs> I actually I got into this thing with hate um so Haley Piper obviously I know everybody knows Haley but like um sort of trees that look like vaginas <laughs> so I just kind of went through this phase of trying to take vaginal trees whenever I went past them <laughs> but again but cost, there's only so much table book <laughs> coffee table book yeah <laughs> Uh, I thought the, I thought the one that Gemma posted with eyes was interesting, but um, that one sounds more interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> What's the um, internet for if not for posting photos of vaginal traits? Really, know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's all academic, right? That's that's why Al Gore invented the internet specifically for that purpose. <laughs> I really suspected as much. I'm glad to have it confirmed. <laughs> Conspiracy theories. And there it is, the traditional awkward silence. Does that mean somebody's waiting for someone to talk? Eric. Sure, I'll, I'll jump into it. Uh, yeah. You know, Nat, I'm curious about this. I, I have not read A Press of Feathers, but I was looking at a little previews of it, and it looks really cool. I'm very much into the sub-sub-genre of bird horror. I don't know Ooh. how birdy the the novel actually is but oh it's birdie <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot of bird action awesome oh good. oh good but but i'm curious what what draws you to uh to bird horror and if there are any other uh bird horror texts or movies or anything out there that uh that you'd recommend i know that's a kind of a weird question but no i, I mean I, I i literally spent the first day of my summer getting up at seven in the morning so i could you know, stomp through some mud to look for an owl that had been sighted in the woods nearby. And I, I didn't find it. So that's, that's kind of where I am on birds. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of kind of seminal bird text, I suppose, obviously the birds, yeah. I mean, it, you can't, you can't get away from it. I think just the, the idea of there being, a, I think the frightening thing about birds for me isn't individual birds per se, although actually I do have something else to add to that in a second, but the, it's the volume of them. You know, the mm. idea that they're kind of these, pack creatures right and, and they have sharp things all over them yes and it, it's basically potentially were you to be attacked by them it'd be like being attacked by a hundred knives descending on you from the air you know what i mean and Ooh, there's that yeah. that sense of hopelessness and helplessness that you get because there are so many of them but i think also um i mean so feathers came about in the first place twofold actually um it was me getting slightly annoyed about a specific does not sound exciting when I say it like this, but there's a, a very specific um, element to the then British housing crisis that was um, to do with mm. basically there being sort of poor doors put into luxury properties. So I, I work a lot in London and um, there were lots of kind of luxury apartments being built, but parts of them were being basically kind of portioned off for um, 
basically people that were either not able to buy or um, that couldn't afford to buy or that um, were sort of having, they were getting subsidized mortgages. Um, but the, the people, basically the people that were paying um, sort of full pelt for the luxury apartments, they would go into the front doors and they'd have access to all the amenities. And then the other people that were basically being framed as like second class citizens, they literally would have like a, a backdoor entrance kind of by the rubbish bins. Oh, wow. And I just the more I read about that, the more incensed I got. And um, also about things like um, defensive architecture, you know, like people putting spikes outside of supermarkets to yep. stop sort of them. Hate that shit. So there's basically stuff stuff around defensive architecture and around kind of um, sort of poor doors being built into luxury apartment blocks in London. Very specific catalyst, I realise. Um, but then at the same time, I um, saw a lot of people posting photos of harpy eagles on Twitter. And the harpy eagle is probably the stuff of my nightmares. You know, if I had to kind of identify a, a creature that would strike terror into my very soul, the harpy eagle is like... I mean, it's so big yeah. and humanoid and just, yeah. yeah. So the, that basically, the kind of image of that was what sort of started Feathers. So for me, it's less, I think, less textual and more, you know, just put a harpy eagle in anything and I am afraid. <laughs> so I feel like if there's a way of sort of generating like a sub, sub, sub genre of harpy eagle horror, I am on board with that train. <laughs> um, I can see why that would cause, especially when I think about, have you guys ever had a bird look you right in the fucking eyes before? Oh, owls. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They're hor- yes. horrifying. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so and the head spins. Horrifying. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm weird because my, the creatures that horrify me the worst in the world are fucking moths. Uh, my daughter hates that. I, I just don't like how dusty video. they are. That's what that, that's what Bev Lee said. Yeah, all that dusty fluttering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, it is. It's the fluttering. It's the the flapping of them. Uh-huh. It's the, yeah. And the yeah, funny thing, daddy is, long even legs. If, even if there were ten thousand of them on you, they couldn't hurt you. But <laughs> well, daddy Ugh. long legs. Daddy long legs. I hate them. Ugh. <laughs> Like the moss, it's the fluttering and it's the legs and it's the, uh, mm-hmm. it's just awful. Um, Actually, uh, the, one of my most vivid, you know, you have sort of childhood moments of the childhood moments that sort of seed anxiety in you in adulthood. I remember running through a field once when I was about 10 and there were just, there's, you know, there's a certain time of year where there's just daddy long legs everywhere. And yeah. I just was running across this field and every step I took, like another cloud of daddy long legs would be unleashed from god. the grass. And it was just, oh God. That's horrible. It's like flying ants in Southampton. It's very bad for flying ants down here in the summer. They suddenly you think it's dandelion um fluff <laughs> flying around and it's it's not. It's ants. <laughs> we we get a lot of, of ticks over here and I remember I have a very distinct memory of going on a walk with my mom and walking the dog. And then when we were done walking through this prairie, we came out and I think in the end we counted, we got about a hundred ticks off of my one dog. And he was so patient and uncomplaining as we plucked them off him. But we had to rip off some clods of fur because there were just too damn many of them. And it was oh. awful. So ticks are on my um, uh, bug shit list, I would say. <laughs> Fair, very fair. Yeah, my my dad used to take his fucking cigarette and stick it on him when they got in my head to make him jump out. Oh, he used to scare the shit out of me. Oh yeah. <laughs> Has there been a bug anthology lately at all for insects and things like that? Oh, we should, that would be awesome. 
I have actually got a story that features Daddy Long Legs. I think I was trying to get it out of my system, but the main <laughs> character ended up being carried away by them and was sort of buried somewhere as food for the um, larvae. It's it just really strange. <laughs> Whenever that story is placed, Steph, I definitely want to read it because that sounds up my alley. <laughs> that's awesome. That's another creature that scares the hell out of me, though, it's just spiders. Um, I let them hang around because I, because we plant a lot of vegetables and stuff, and I want them to kill the things that kill my vegetables. But if they come in my house, I'll bet her off. Oh, I don't like them. There was one last yeah. night that was crawling over me when I was reading, so I had to shout for my husband to come and oh. take it. But I'm there saying, don't kill it, don't kill it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't Just, stand them, but I'm saying, don't kill them. <laughs> well, that's, but yeah, I will, I will, um, unabashedly admit that my spouse takes the spiders outside for me so the spider catcher <laughs> is where it's at i heartily recommend a spider catcher we've got yeah. like a yeah just it's a long-handled one and it's just it's the only way to survive i have I, I, I have one it's, it's a redhead <laughs> I have to say, one of the things that, because obviously, I mean, the UK's got a fairly shit climate and, yeah, the terrible food and so on. Yeah. So there's a few things that I, you know, if I were to think about other places that I prefer to live. So, like, in fact, like the West Coast, for example. But the one thing that I do really enjoy about the UK is the relative dearth of spiders that could kill me. I, I very much True. enjoy it. <laughs> well, um, we've got biggish spiders. We haven't necessarily got anything too deadly. Yeah. That's what I like about the Pacific Northwest, too, is that. We have black widows and brown recluse, but not in huge numbers unless you're on the coast. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the pest problems, especially with deadly spiders, is very minimal. I, just, I think about somewhere like Australia and I just, even in the urban areas, that's the thing. I think I always had this idea that, so I travel quite a lot for work. I used to mm -hmm. travel quite a lot for work. And you get this idea, you know, if you stay in urban centres, the the bugs I and mean, especially south america you know sort of brazil and argentina obviously if you go out into the rainforesty bits there are well, fucking half eagles for a start which i will not be venturing <laughs> to look at but like the you know there are things there are loads of things there's a sort of flora and fauna everywhere that could just kill you and um that's fine you know come to terms with that because there is definitely a clear division of you know this is the kind of foresty bits and this is the kind of urban you know sort of building mm -hmm. bits yeah. but actually you know Australia even sort of the heart of Sydney or Melbourne there are still horrible spiders and cockroaches and things mm -hmm. kind of crunching underfoot and there's not really anywhere to hide and yeah. I find that terrifying. You just reminded me I used to work for a confectionery company um, I was responsible for quality assurance of raw materials and they were sort of healthy confectionery, but they were owned by Ranchies of York who were bought by Nestle. And because I did a bit of, um, I always get the wrong word, entomology or etymology, entomology, I think is insects as part of my A-level. They said I could do pest control as part of that. Oh. I was sent off on this oh. course. And there are all these examples of the pests you could have. And the, the lecture paper, he had this big tin of tuna and he opened the lid and it was a giant cockroach inside. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. I hate insects, but I ended up being responsible. So there were all these deliveries of, um, oh, God. you'd have dried nuts 
well, you'd have ground nuts and dried fruit and anything like that. You'd get Indian meal moth larvae and so you'd get maggots crawling if it hadn't been um, fumigated and you'd get mites in your dried apricots and things like that. So if I go into health food shops now, um, I'm always looking at the packets because I know what to look for to see if they've been fumigated or if anything's crawling. But the, the shops and people wouldn't store their, the goods properly either. So they have these boxes of about 36 odd sort of fruit bars, that raw fruit, you know, pressed into bar shape. And these would get infested and they would wrap them up and send them back to us. And we'd get this parcel that'd be on my desk and I'd be opening it up and all these maggots would come crawling oh, God, out. And yeah. it was just, oh, it was disgusting. Yeah, I had to pick up dead rats. Send me an email offline rats. perhaps containing what I need to look out for next time I'm in the supermarket. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went up to um, York to the uh, factory up there. So I saw where they made Smarties and polos and all the all the confectionery that you've grown up with kit kat machines the huge sort of windmill shaped things with wafers in them and i walked around and as i looked i looked up and i saw all these moth traps so i knew they have exactly the same problems and you know in any of these confectionery companies and then i used to have to take rent to kill round who do inspections and they would tell me tales of certain companies I suppose I better be careful what I say, but certain companies <laughs> that you couldn't open the machinery, but it would get infested. And when they did take the panels out, they would find all these creepy crawlers in there. And these are household names. And it's just, oh, it's disgusting. I did uh, I did pest control work for about two months once because I hated it. Um, <laughs> and that's what I went around and did the, the restaurant accounts in down in Salem, um, which nobody knows where that's at, but um, restaurants are horrible. You see the back back of some of those houses, you'll never eat in a restaurant again. <laughs> you know? uh, they get bad, bad infests. I mean, obviously it's going to happen because you've got all that grease and all the food particles and everything like that. You're going to have cockroaches um, in this city anyway, or in Salem. And we have a healthy cockroach population. Um, but yeah, it would get really, really nasty, and you'd, we'd have like twenty-five different rat traps around the places. <laughs> rats. Um, but uh, then, what chased me away is when I had to go and empty those fucking rat traps. It's like, nah, I couldn't. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I didn't have the cruelty in me because it's like usually, usually the rodents were still alive, and they drop them in water and leave them underwater long enough to drown them. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I hate those fuckers too, but I couldn't do shit, man. <laughs> we had, um, there was there were pellets, there were poison, whatever it was that was put around the site where the, the factories were that I worked, but it was in a rural area of Wales, so it was sort of wild around it, so that's why there were rats, and they would come in, and they would be dead everybody would just leave they'd just point to it and say Steph there's one so I'd have to go and get it and be rigid you know <laughs> so it wouldn't move you pick up by this solid tail and I oh I had to throw it but no one else would pick up they left it to me but I thought why it's not going to hurt you but it's not things you do as yeah. part of your career plan no, that I'm wasn't in it, it. <laughs> 
Uh, if, you know, you, if you remove a dead rat, though, it's much better if it's in rigor than if it's past rigor and all mushy and stinky. And... Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're not that far from rats, are you? I don't know what the distance is, but everybody's within a certain distance of mm -hmm. a rat population. And they're yeah, always like, near water and water tanks. Yeah, guaranteed. It. Well, Portland is a port city, so we have, uh, yeah rats here that could carry you away if they wanted to um and yeah i think they said here here in the city of portland at any given time in most locations you're about seven to ten feet away from a rat at any time and usually much closer yeah you know maybe we need a rat rescue program where we just have a big old field fill it full of rats that are taken from live traps and then they don't have to be in Portland anymore. Just <laughs> take them to the rat rescue. Yeah, just but can you imagine that field full of rats? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> just like a moving brown carpet and yeah. lots of beady yeah. eyes and they all <laughs> yeah. merge into one and then you get a mutant rat. Yeah, no longer rat king. You'd have like a rat emperor or something. Yeah. Did you, uh, have you guys read uh, Frank Herbert's Rats? Mm -mm. I did Correct. years ago. Yes. Yeah, years ago. But oh, okay. I mean, anything like that. The the um, you know that Stephen King short as well, the one in Night Shift. Like, yeah, it's a great shift, something like that. With the again with the King Night rats shift. and like all of it. Yeah, it's just. Oh. I think when they get past a certain size, it's not about them being anthropomorphic. Actually, it's like I can cope with that. It's when they get to be big and anthropomorphic, mm -hmm. and then they're kind of somehow more sentient than i am that frightens me uh, especially when you know they're so fucking smart yeah um, well that's it isn't it it's like they can they can already outwit me when they're six inches mm -hmm. the yeah. idea that they might be six foot and outwitting me is just yeah. terrific <laughs> could be the mice that were scared of according to hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy they're the brainy ones yes. that's true although yeah, they feel more benign I know they're not, and they've still got rotavirus, but they feel more benign. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just had a flashback to various rat-based horror, and now, yes. Um, I have actually yeah. written a short, yeah, I've written a short story called Rats, Sally, and I've just sent that out for a Halloween thing. And there are rats in there, and they are in a, an alley. <laughs> but it's not the rats you need to be scared of. Yeah. So what do you need to be scared of? Well, it was the humans that were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Well, yeah, humans in any environment are something to be scared of most of the time. Um, um, but uh, I wanted to talk about some, some, some about um, diversity in our community um, and things that I've seen. First off, uh, as you know, I'm a very, very vocal advocate for mental health. Um, and I've seen a lot of, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding in our community and there's a lot of just blatantly open intolerance to people, you know, who have, have things like ADHD and ASD and name it, you know, every other acronym. Um, to the point, you know, I've had people call me crazy. I've had people block me. I've had people you know, um, call my friends crazy for the same reasons. Um, and it's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But 
the community as a whole doesn't really seem to see that. Because, I mean, and I know why I don't blame them. It's because if you aren't living it, you don't understand it like anything, you know? So I just think that's something that we should all be aware of when we're dealing is with each other in this community is that yeah, it's that, that, vast majority of creative people have mental health issues. <laughs> it's just fact. <laughs> Something living that I learned as well. It's yeah. living, in the, something... living in the world begets. Yeah. It's of anxiety, especially now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You know, Shane, I'm cycling through my head trying to think of people I know who are creative who don't have some sort of right mental health issue. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't confirm everyone, but it's it's sure a lot of people. I don't know if we, I don't know if it's the writing that causes us to develop the mental health issues or if it's the mental health issues that cause us to write. I think, I think the latter. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It is. Um, I said, yeah, I was just going to say the one thing that I learned when I was working in the school with teens and there were kids with, uh, whether it was ADHD, ASD, Mm -hmm. autism, you learned to adapt to them and their way of thinking. Mm. You didn't expect them to be as every, you know, as everybody expects. Uh, so, for example, if I was working with an autistic kid and they would be a certain way, they would say things quite bluntly that most others would say, well, you know, oh, that's a bit rude. And they would be apologizing for saying this. I was no, because I understood that was how they perceived things, how they sensed things. It was a different way of seeing things. And it was up to me to recognize that and accept that and adapt it accordingly. I think people feel threatened by by these things because it's different to what they expect and they don't know how to respond. Whereas all yeah. you really need to do is get to know that person mm-hmm. and adjust yourself. Exactly. You know, there's there's, there's yeah. no issues, but it just does need people to listen to each other, to accept each other for what they are, to yep. be maybe more open about themselves um, and what they are, so they're not putting pressure on themselves right. by being something they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I know that some people, you can't always be what you want to be because you're frightened of other people's reactions. Right. But it's um, those people that have the problem, not the person. And who's that's exactly to be right. Themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I you, think, I mean, one of the things that's that's lovely, I think, I mean, not just actually, not just within our community, but I think more generally, one of the benefits of social media is that people are able to kind of talk. That because obviously, the more I think, the more people talk about neurodiversity, mm-hmm. the more you, the more the more people are starting to interrogate yeah. the idea that actually there is a baseline normal. Because I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's the shift, and that's one of the things that I think's been most delightful over the last few years Thank with you. with the growth of stuff like social media and just people being able to connect, you know, kind um, of across the geographies. Just this idea that actually there isn't necessarily a baseline normal, and that the mm-hmm. kind of I suppose sort of neurological wiring isn't there isn't a, a good and a bad or a right or a wrong. There no. are different models mm-hmm. of being wired, and that all of them have different strengths and weaknesses, and we can kind of recognize that. Yeah, and I think, but yeah, I think by being on social media, also people are seeing others like themselves. So they think, oh yeah, there's more like me. I'm not the only one. I'm not isolated, and that mm-hmm. guilt that gives a bit more confidence and helps them to be more who they want to be, and to get others to accept mm-hmm. that. 
and that's yeah. huge too if you're if you are someone who is, has uh divergences um it's huge hugely important to find a community just like any other um divergences in society if you don't have a community backing you you're just vulnerable as fuck yeah so and good. I think just the, and the conversation having a cultural discourse and in fact even, yeah. on a, even on a really basic level you know a few years ago there was a lot of discussion about kind of introversion and extroversion so there was that that quiet book about yeah. introversion that came out that my was, daughter's got it I found it when I was putting some boxes I haven't read it yet it's actually I mean it's it's okay it's it I, it's obviously I think it, it necessarily it's quite broad stroke you know there are introverts and there are extroverts mm-hmm. and yeah. but the idea because obviously part of, neuro, part of part of kind of acknowledging that neurodiversity exists is sort of acknowledging that maybe there isn't a baseline to deviate from mm-hmm. you know what I mean that actually exactly everybody's neurodiverse it's just that it's the you know, x y and z way but one of the things that I think was interesting about that book and the conversation that it started to provoke was this idea that actually you've got entire cultures i mean certainly the uk mm-hmm. and the us that are based around a specific model of extroversion you know that are based around being able to be sociable in a certain right. way and certainly right. in professional contexts. and this idea actually that maybe you don't have to do that after all you know what i mean or actually that that isn't the baseline normal it's just been framed as that yeah i agree and too I think-, I think i think you're dead on with that that there is no baseline normal you know and it's kind of something I harp on a lot I'm not I'm not broken I'm different you know Um, absolutely yeah and we're all different you know we've got two women here we've got two men here we've got three queers here one straight person um we've got two British people two in two sorry English uh Americans um and uh I lost my train of thought but anyway (laughs) And we're probably all related, I'll say. Um, more, yeah, more than likely. More than likely. I'm pretty sure I married my sister. <laughs> and I s- slept with my brother once. Well, it's um, gone all Greek now. Yeah. Have we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I, I don't um, have a brother, but I'm pretty sure I did the same, Shane. Um, the reason I bring that up, obviously, is um, most people in this community, a great deal of you already know that about me. But yeah, Stephanie's the only straight person here. Um, and she's kind of she's kind of fucking twisted. So but that's all that's all I want to talk about that really, except for to talk about the subject of of um, queers and horror, horror and poetry and you know how we can infuse that and like Haley piper says make horror gay as fuck yeah <laughs> that reminds me actually i tried to buy a t-shirt today and i had trouble with paypal but i'm going back tomorrow the um so you know andrew the book dad he's um yeah i just love them there are good people in this community. That's something to keep in mind all the time because I, I get really jaded sometimes with the assholes. Yeah. And you have to back off and remind yourself of the, of the people that um, are really there for you and are really tolerant and mm-hmm. really have your back, you know. And so anyway, I interrupted again. Shane, you mentioning a queer horror. I just am reminded. I'm thinking about you know some of the kindest people I've met in this community are mm-hmm. also you know members of the queer community too. And uh, 
and then I think about people like Eric Laraca, for instance, who yeah. is literally one of the most kind people I've ever met in my entire life and is so incredibly gentle, but he writes the gnarliest shit. <laughs> like there is just some supremely gnarly, just utterly like, oh my yeah. God, I can't believe I'm reading this. Uh, so, <laughs> the cover I, on his new book tells yeah, it all. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just love that. It's, it's such a wonderful combination of kindness yeah. and just like, gnarly radicalism that i appreciate i don't know it's cool um <laughs> oh, yeah and that's you know sort of Hayley and sarah tantlinger and you know i mean some of the yeah. stuff that they've written like i mean sarah tantlinger is to, to be devoured is yeah it's pretty, you know, it's oh, pretty God. it's pretty intense yeah it is and like i don't know but she, i mean she's absolutely obviously only interacted with her on twitter but she's absolutely <laughs> lovely you know what oh. i mean and there's that yeah there is that kind of juxtaposition of like people being really sort of sweet and gentle and supportive and then cannibalism uh, Cl- clive barker <laughs> yeah yeah you know, i mean <laughs> it kind of says it all you know if, if someone says i'm queer and i write horror it's probably going to scare the shit out of you <laughs> well I, I think some of that is just like we live uh more frightening lives in many ways like mm-hmm. I, and i don't want to generalize too much like i think for me personally as a biases man in a straight relationship like my experience is probably going to be much less scary than uh you know some of my friends who are trans and in Mm -hmm. uh you know like gay relationships it's yeah it's gonna be a little more frightening for them for instance but yeah i do think just in general because our experiences in life are yeah i don't know a little more high anxiety a little more intense in ways that uh, cis straight readers might not experience. I, mm-hmm. I think that that's reflected in our work a lot. So Remind me to, oh, well, I'll just do it now. Because um, <laughs> I heard you trailing off. Um, that's something too, you know, that people don't understand about uh, queer people is mm-hmm. that, uh, let's see, I think you, you said you're in a straight relationship. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I am also. Mm-hmm. I believe Nat is. I I, I am not. I am. Oh. But I'm, I'm wrong. <laughs> no, but I um. So I was I was married to a dude mm-hmm. previously, but um. No, currently to a lady. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um. It's. I, don't, I think it's it's a funny one because yeah, the, there's this perception that and I know there's a lot of debate about this at the moment that queerness is kind of contingent on constantly performing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just that whole idea is exhausting, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think a lot of it ties back into the idea that people have that queerness is exclusively about sex. Mm-hmm. You know that's, that it's that's right. That it's yeah, it's born out in the performance of sex, basically, and like it. And I mean, obviously, sex is part of it, and desire and attraction mm-hmm. and all of these things are kind of mutually imbricated. But actually, you know, the vast majority—I've got two young children—the vast majority mm-hmm. of my life is spent, you know, washing things. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, what the heck, people fuck too. So you know, I mean, if you're in love, you know, <laughs> go where you yeah, want to go. Yeah, I think that's it, and it's not. It, it, it's not something that necessarily requires constant demonstration through sex or through kind of, you know, or, or through something participatory. I think it's right. enough to say, actually, this is how I identify and that, you know what I mean? And that's yeah. fine. I don't need to keep reinforcing this over and over again. Yeah. Too many people, someone says they're, says they're queer and too many straight people think that means you sleep with a woman and that means 
Eric sleeps only sleeps with guys, you know, and we're we're all fucking our own same gender, but that's it, you know. People don't take it any farther. They don't consider fluidity. Um, they don't consider that for some of us, sex is just the absolute opposite of their queerness, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about I, I'm a I'm a demi, um, and I couldn't I. I can't get aroused by someone unless I have emotion for them. I have to have feelings for them, mm-hmm. you know? So, and then I don't give a fuck if it's a, if it's a man, woman, trans woman, trans male, I don't give a shit, you know? Cause it means nothing to me. I hate gender. <laughs> so, but that's the thing is that there's so much diversity even with it and, and nobody, you know, um, I lost my, lost my thought again i'm sorry you guys i've got a i'm nervous as hell so oh you're good you're you're great man so <laughs> oh good but, but, it's, I, but it's, it's interesting though i think that the the queerness you know sort of relationship between queerness and horror i mean mm-hmm. so, so clive barker it's it's not for me it's not just about the queerness it's mm-hmm. it's definitely about the sort of intersection of the for, for all i've actually just said it's not about oh, sex. Yeah. Like, with, with me and barker it's all about the the sort of intersection of sort of queerness and BDSM so you read something like um sort of hellbound heart and it's I mean obviously mm-hmm. like anecdotally it's it's something that he came up with because he was he sort of visiting a lot of BDSM clubs in New York in the 70s but it's you know what I mean there's that kind of I think it, it comes back to the a similar point to the neurodivergence thing actually this idea mm-hmm. actually that it there is. isn't necessarily a baseline good or bad there isn't necessarily a baseline right or wrong so exactly. you can play around with ideas of kind of sort of moral purity and monstrosity with more yeah. impunity perhaps you would have if you had that than you would have if you had a different perspective on that i have a story i'm writing right now that i'll probably never manage to sell because queer um but uh every every character in it is non-binary um, and i believe that that's kind of the direction our society is headed if we don't all blow up first you know I mean, because when I was a kid, what I how I described um, queer people—that's how it really was. You know, you people didn't understand anything beyond that men sleep with men and women sleep with women, and it's okay if, if you're a dude. It's okay for the women to sleep with women, but the dudes sleeping with dudes need to get their asses kicked. You know. <laughs> Well, I think so, also with women, it's like, you know, that kind of Queen Victoria thing of ladies mm-hmm. don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Sorry, although obviously now whenever I think of Queen Victoria, I think about, you know, that Neil Gaiman story, the, the Lovecraft Sherlock Holmes mashup. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where she actually, yeah. Anyway, oh. sorry, I digress. <laughs> oh, uh, Good Omens, is that it? No, it's. No, no, oh, that other, yeah. Sure. Is it um, A Study in Emerald? Oh, yeah. It's basically where, yeah, Queen Victoria is this kind of Lovecraftian slug monster. <laughs> so now whenever I think of oh, Victorian cool. anything, it's awesome. I love it. I haven't it. read that one yet. <laughs> That's awesome. Think, imagine if the royals were changelings. <laughs> oh, very <laughs> oddly, to be honest. <laughs> um, well, my distant cousins, I'll have you know. Very, but... very, very, very distant. <laughs> <laughs> very very distant yeah i did my family history i'm descended from alfred the great ah <laughs> i uh the one with the cakes that burned oh yeah yeah there's a statue of him in winchester 
So yeah, I've got a flashback to you know, like stuff in school. There was one that burned cakes. Like, yes, it was. Yeah. Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> and who have I got else? Uh, all the Plantagenets are in my family. So I'm descended from that line as well. But it all sort of went pear-shaped in the 13th century or so. <laughs> got dire. But I lay claim to the Vikings. I do like the Vikings. I think that's probably why I like death metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, you and I will have to uh, exchange death metal recommendations. <laughs> well, it's Eurovision tonight. There's never been a better time. Oh, be well, apparently, there were a couple of metal bands on there. Um, it's yeah, really, but that's um, what I heard. I mean, to be honest, after that Finnish entry, nothing would surprise me. <laughs> right? <laughs> I saw I saw a video of that online. But, uh, so that's something, though, um, and I keep trying to come to this and losing my thought, but back to um, queerness in literature. Um, I think it's my friend Stephanie, yeah, um, Witovich, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, she was writing an essay on queer poetry the other day. And I got to thinking about that. And even I didn't, hadn't ever really put together that that was even such a thing or a category, you know? So, but then when I started thinking about it, I started thinking, well, it's kind of, it's kind of, in a way, my responsibility to infuse my work with that kind of sensibility, you know, because it doesn't harm the work, it enriches the work, and it all, it, it also kind of, you know, makes things, like you said, not normal, but normal. <laughs> yeah, a lot of poetry, though, is, it was yeah. sort of coded messages, wasn't it? And you go back. Yeah, yeah. 15th 16th century a lot of the courtly love all the all the romance all that it was it was all disguised and they were all poems to various people you have to try and work out who it was for it was there but it was just hidden in the language of the time well even Mm -hmm. some of the the sort of kind of early modern theatre like I mean so obviously Marlowe but I'm thinking like something Edward II you know you've got like openings soliloquies that are basically just kind of love poems to men and mm-hmm. also from men to men yeah. yeah there's definitely that sense that kind of poetry is that so poetry and soliloquy and kind of play context so yeah whether it's performed or not it's still basically a way of sending messages to people secretly because there's an mm-hmm. element of the deco- there's a necessary element of decoding with poetry I think that right. yeah you can't get away from yeah absolutely and sometimes the poetry we write is actually a message to a specific person and that's the only person in the world who's going to know what the hell it means really Mm -hmm. but like you say it's coded so it means something to everybody because it has to um but it means more a a little bit more to just that one person you know so i I digress um yeah the trailblazers suck Sorry. It's interesting actually because I haven't. I've read. I'm just thinking about Eric LaRocca again. I've. Um, I just finished. Um, things have gotten worse since we last spoke. <laughs> I will not mention because spoilers. But um, <laughs> that's the one. That, but that, yeah, that's that is that is definitely an interesting one. <laughs> but the, um, and I found Dandelion his his poetry collection. I haven't read that one yet. But again. I gather that that's quite explicitly queer, you know, it, sort of, it deals very explicitly with kind of sort of queer identity and queer things yeah. and kind of living in the world mm-hmm. as a gay man. Yeah, and I didn't so, think about it. I didn't think about it as, you know, approaching it subtly. I've written a couple now and um, it's blatantly obvious that they're queer as fuck. 
you know so <laughs> I think there's that there's that sense that poetry is kind of that medium, like Steph says, you know, it's, it's that kind of that medium for communicating yeah. things that otherwise might go unsaid. But I think there's an interesting tension now that, you know, sort of the love that dare not speak its name is kind of very much being spoken and mm-hmm. how to mediate that with a form that's traditionally been about keeping things slightly coded and slightly subtextual. Mm-hmm. Sorry for a second, I was delivering a lecture again. <laughs> no no that's by good. all means I was that's enjoying that's it okay. <laughs> carry on but, it's, but no I think it's fascinating so I mean if, if you take something like you know sort of the, like the wasteland which is sort of a bit of a kind of a text I suppose you know in terms mm-hmm. of like sort of poetry text that need to be deconstructed it's mm-hmm. it's completely elusive if you take away the illusions there is no text mm-hmm. and you know so much poetry that's got that kind of queer subtext whether it is you know kind of early modern blokes writing to each other mm-hmm. or you know sort of 17th century women at court writing kind of romantic poetry yeah. to each other but not really being able to acknowledge that and it was romantic poetry yeah it's, it's like go ahead well just, what do, basically what do you if you if you strip away the need for subtext what are you left with yeah you know what I mean like what kind of formal invention Mm -hmm. what kind of formal invention then is there and how would that get that's one of the reasons I'm quite interested in reading Fang Dandelion actually like how how do you explicitly mediate queerness with Mm -hmm. something that requires an element of subtext Mm -hmm. Um, and that's interesting too that you say that because poetry really I think of it sometimes as the ultimate subtweet you know (laughs) (laughs) you can read so much into a poem and there's so many interpretations exactly. I just that's why I love it it's, it's I mean the, when I was with kids at school um they were studying it for their PCSEs whatever and they, they hated poetry and they they'd get upset about it and I said as long as you can explain your reasoning you can say whatever you like about the poem you know you say what it means to you and back it up yeah it means so many different things to so many different people there is no one specific interpretation it doesn't yeah. matter what the establishment tells you no it's like the establishment all the elite tell you about a piece of art oh this is wonderful well no it's not because it's just a block of paint on a wall but you know everybody's free to make their own interpretations exactly but we, shouldn't to, we shouldn't have to be told by others who are who tell us that they know better i just don't like that sort of elitism at all no i don't either i, and I, I think, think that's I mean, one Oh, sorry, Eric. Oh, no, that's right. I, I think that's why I like, just speaking as a teacher, I really like teaching, well, certain poems that have ambiguity to them and mm-hmm. weird fiction, particularly. Like I teach a horror lit class and lots of what I teach is, is weird fiction. And um, it's, I think, fun and liberating for the kids to simply give permission to be like, hey, you know, like, I actually have spoken to the author of this piece. And when I asked a question about, you know, what the hell is going on here? Neither of us could come up with an answer, which in a way is your permission to get as crazy as, or not trying to get that word out of my vocab, get as wild as you want with your uh, uh, interpretation of Mm -hmm. um, whatever's going on here at this piece. I I think that kind of the same thing could be said for poetry. Like there's sort of a, a decentralized authority with it where, you know, there's probably not just one person who has the answer to it. Mm-mm. There are lots of different ways you can read it. And I've, I think same yeah. thing applies to weird fiction. I've had oh, people clearly. tell me, I've had people tell me stuff about my poetry that I didn't realize. And it's yeah, like, oh, yeah. wow, you're right about that, you know? And so, sorry. No, well, I think that it's interesting. Actually, I think both 
both poetry and weird fic kind of sit in this bucket. Mm-hmm. So I want to, in terms of, uh, so I really, I really like um, Mikhail Bakhtin, the critical theorist dude. Like, um, basically, his whole thing is like, there's, um, it's impossible to say anything original because everything that you speak is a kind of culmination of all the other voices that you've heard previously. Um, mm-hmm. So he wrote a lot about like polyphony and you know, sort of a multiplicity of voices and all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the things that I really like about both poetry as a form and kind of weird fic, you know, is this kind of, again, really strange, elusive thing that may be impossible to decode definitively. Mm-hmm. Is this because for Bakhtin, everything that's ever written or produced or said, you know, whether it's a literally you know, as a novel or whether it's somebody saying something in the street is it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a culmination of everything that the speaker or the writer or whatever has heard previously. So it's being yeah. manifested in a slightly different way. But that poetry and, and weird fic, they do it quite self-consciously. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no sense of them trying to present something original. It's much more mm-hmm. actually of an engagement with previous discourses. Yeah. And it's putting it front and center. Again, yeah. in a way yeah. that I think maybe novels don't always. You know, I think sometimes yeah. because because novels tend to be, you know, again, of necessity, slightly more linear. There's more yeah, of a sense of, you know, I'm, the, I'm putting something out there in the world, I'm putting out a viewpoint. Whereas I think with with poetry and with weird fic, where you just don't know what the fuck is going on, it's yeah. very much like, you know, it's there are a thousand different voices speaking through this and mm-hmm. listen to the one that you hear. Yeah. Sorry, tumbleweed. No, Please continue. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I write poems sometimes. I don't always know exactly what I mean when I write it, but I know mm-hmm. the feeling that it gives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if I'm reading other poets' work, I don't always, again, understand fully what's going on, but it gives a certain vibe. And mm-hmm. like the understanding is through the senses rather than these specific words. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I was going to say, too, is that um, with poetry, you have to d- pretty much distill it down to raw emotion to get your point across. Um, so, of course, it's going to mean something different to everybody. But it can mean different things to the same person at different yeah. times as well. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it's the taste of the language, isn't it? You know, the rhythm, oh, the yeah. rhythm of it. It's not necessarily even about having a definitive meaning. It's like, mm-hmm. it's what sensation does the shape of this word or the shape of these syllables or the juxtaposition of this and this kind of elicit in you with somebody writing it and then somebody mm-hmm. else reading it. And that's where my love of poetry com- comes in is that I write a really bad poem and then I go back and massage it and, you know, shape the words. I kind of think of poetry the way a sculptor would think of their art. You know, it's something that you, you lay the blob of clay first and then you start shaping it and, you know, or not sculpting, but yeah, I guess that's what it's called. Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that, though. It's sculpture. <laughs> I think a lot of writing it, it, it it's actually so many mm-hmm. people have told me this it's that, um it's funny because it is actually completely antithetical to the way that I write which is again like a copy editor <laughs> mm-hmm. like what do I want to say let me make a very very detailed plan point by point and then only when the plan is complete will I begin to write it but like a lot of people talk about writing as you know like there there's something there's something trapped in a raw material and it's their job to kind of dig it out mm-hmm and I, I slightly envy that, <laughs> you know, um, that idea that you're kind of getting at something that already exists rather than making something sort of wholesale. Yeah. I've read, I've read a lot of um, sort of Anglo-Saxon 
got early poetry and I got the, the prose, the poet, the poetic edders, and I think the Icelandic sagas. And I love the way they write. They use a lot of metaphors and those, this, these kennings, whatever it is, which is a certain type of metaphor and the imagery. I don't always get what they're going on, but the way they put the words together, it's, it's like these paintings in your head. It's a gallery. It's, it's just amazing. I'd love to write like them. They might have killed everyone as they went about their invasions, but they wrote amazing poetry. <laughs> well, and you look at, speaking of meanings, uh, I don't remember which one of you mentioned the wasteland, but, um, God damn it. Never mind. Go on, Steph. <laughs> I, stop. I will say the, what's it? The hollow, hollow men, I think is one of my favorite poems. It's just so bleak. Yes. Well, like that, that. Yeah. That was the thing about, um, I was going to say about the wasteland is that it evokes all this imagery and sensation and emotion. And yet, I honestly, it's my favorite poem in the world, and I don't have a fucking clue what that thing means to him. <laughs> I actually, I mean, it's funny because when I, I first, I remember when I first read it, there's, obviously there's all the notes at the back, and mm-hmm. you read it and you yeah. can you know, sort of try and meticulously cross-reference and be like, oh, it's that and it's that and it's that. But mm-hmm. actually, I mean, for me, that completely kills the pleasure of it. Mm-hmm. Like the, mm-hmm. for me, because I, I, I absolutely love the wasteland, but like the pleasure yeah. of it is in the, the trying to trying to impose some kind of meaning on something that feels very chaotic that isn't necessarily yeah. an intentional meaning at all and in fact so my my favorite poem in the world is um it's another t.s Eliot's marina you know that mm. um what seas what shores what gray rocks and what islands sort of thing like that and that again i know logically that that's about pericles <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. i mean like it's a riff of pericles but i don't give a fuck do you know what i mean like i'm not yeah. reading it for that i'm not reading it to be transported back to what i would consider one of his lesser plays anyway <laughs> like it's um it's the it's the language it's that yeah. sense of you know somebody's on a ship confused and forlorn and well, what the yeah. hell's going on you know yeah, they're trapped in a fog it's it, you, it's that if you dissect poetry <sighs> god damn Sorry, got it bad today, you guys. <laughs> um, oh, this doesn't the worst, have time, the time. The worst time to read poetry is when you're at school because um, you put off it for years, mm-hmm. and I used to hate it. Um, the only reason I got back into it was I was doing my open university degree, and I did a, a summer school and I did poetry session, and they were looking at Porphyria's Lover. And I always get it wrong. Is it Browning wrote that, I think? And I, I read it and I thought, yeah, it's OK. And then they started to look at the language. And by the end of it, I realised it was a psychotic poem about a bloke who just killed <laughs> his um, partner, his girlfriend, because it was a thing to do. You know, yeah. he, they were sat there. What can I do? Oh, I'll just strangle her yeah. with her hair. Right. And then and he just carried on sitting there. And that was amazing. After that, I was reading all sorts of poems, <laughs> trying to right. tease out the meanings and looking at all the clues and all the protest poetry from earlier where people get disputed if they discovered who'd yeah. written it or who was it. And, you know, it's it's political. People think poetry is for, uh, you know, the be still my beating heart sort of thing. Right. And right. lovey dovey stuff. And it's not. It's protest. It's... Mm-hmm rebellion there's there's so much in there it's oh yeah I just oh it is and it's uh, completely you know 
I mean, I think Cheng, you were saying about, you know, it can be a message to one particular person. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, I mean, it is, it's the perfect vehicle for just a kind of a very personalized fuck you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, but yeah. also, but also, um, like a huge portion of my poetry I call self exorcism. And because I, I'm, I'm a confessional poet, I'm not much of a narrative poet unless somebody's paying me for it. Um, <laughs> and then I'm any kind of fucking poet you want me to be. <laughs> Fair, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so yeah, it's kind of like, you know, purging. After I wrote the stuff with Josh Mallerman, Mallerman um, I went into a major funk, you know, total, total imposter syndrome. And when the fuck is everybody going to wake up and realize that this is shit or, you know, and con conversely you know um this is all you had this is you blew your load you're never going to be able to do this again you know even though i've been writing poetry for five years you know so i was horrified and miserable and depressed and bleak and poetry is what i use to work my way through things like that so but yes, Nat, what you were saying, it is a very, very good way to give a very specific fuck you to someone. Oh, yeah. Well, it, a bit, but also anything. It can be a way of sort of getting, just like you were saying, like it's a, it's a way of exercising something that's inside you. Yeah. Or a way of saying fuck you to somebody. It's a way of telling somebody that you love them. It's because it's so elusive of necessity because just of the, you know, the sort of paucity of language in there versus other formats. It's, it's got a bit, it comes back to the coded thing again, you know, like Steph was saying, like it's, it, it's of necessity coded. So right. it can, you can kind of encode it with anything you want, you know, any kind of, in a way that you know will slightly resist interpretation because it, or definitive interpretation because it's so contingent what some, on what somebody gets when they read it. Right, right. Um, go ahead, Eric. Well, I think it's interesting talking about the way in which poetry can be coded because most of my experience with poetry comes from both writing and performing slam poetry and then coaching slam poetry at a school for a year. And I think a lot of slam poetry is, oh, I, I don't want to be overgeneralizing, but I think it's a little less subtle. There's, I think, a lot more direct confrontational energy to it yeah and you talking Mm. about you know how a poetry can be a big f you to someone (laughs) a funny little story about that that was very uncomfortable at the time was witnessing at a one of the final slam poetry competitions of the year for the the midwest u.s was a a student who performed a poem that was a literal and very direct and unambiguous f you to their coach uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who had who had um I, I guess done some you know was sort of negligent in their coaching duties and maybe it was not the kindest to uh, some people on the team so that that's my experience with poetry coming from a little less subtle of an angle um with slam but i i still think slam even in its sometimes lack of subtlety can be mm-hmm. very powerful and appealing and immediately like oh, i don't know i mean there, there's just such an emotional quality to the language where it's uh i I think the way that you experience it is still sort of intuitive in the way that the way you experience poetry on the page is intuitive. Like Mm -hmm. Nat, you mentioned like how going to the story notes and the wasteland sort of killed it a little bit. And there's like, there's something 
pleasurable about sort of letting the words and the images and the the sound of it all uh, wash over you. And I, I think that, yeah, that intuitive approach to yeah. page poetry can also be applied to uh, spoken word poetry. And yeah. that's what I was going to say about um, before when I said, when Nat was talking about that and I said, if you dissect poetry and then lost my fucking mind um, is it's kind of, to me, that's kind of like watching a movie being filmed or a movie of a movie being filmed where all you're doing is sitting there watching them actually film the fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't, don't go at it from the back end forward. You know, <laughs> At least that's my take on it. You know, I'd never really try to openly, dissect what a poem means or what might have meant to the writer so much as I listen to the sounds the same stuff Nat was saying you know the nuances the subtleties um there's song in there and like you said Eric the intuition behind that and spoken poetry um now I'm lost again <laughs> that's okay that's all right <laughs> but uh, really poetry when you say spoken poetry poetry sh in my opinion should all be spoken but mm -hmm. um, but i don't always get to do that you know <laughs> yeah I, I do find it a lot more engaging to mm -hmm. hear it out loud especially in the context of slam when there's not i i mean there's the uh, poet voice that people make fun of a lot and I, i'm not going to try to replicate it because I deliberately tried when I was doing slam personally to avoid that, but the uh, performed really affected quality of, of the poet voice that can sometimes, uh, you know, sap the joy out of a poetry performance. Uh -huh. and, and thankfully I've had the pleasure of getting to see some extremely talented vocal poet performers give the poem the justice that it needs when, you know, performed out loud as it should be. Then yeah. what I mean about that poem is when they drag the vowels out so they're speaking very slowly. There's there's some adverts <laughs> we have over here, and I think it's one of the building societies. I can't remember which it is, and they they use poets, and they've got that. Oh poem. yeah. Um, oh. I, I can't remember which bank. I know not. Oh, it's but nationwide. It's, it's nationwide. It's, yeah, yeah, I just cringe, and I think they're quite well known poets. I can never remember who they are, but. It just makes you want to curl up. I just like, it takes out it's, the emotion. It's unbearable. But yeah, it's just it makes it seem pretentious and elitist. Yeah, and removed, and that's not what it should be. It should I be one of the it, most immediate. Something like slam, it's the spontaneity, right? It's the possibility of it adapting and evolving while it's being spoken. Whereas something written down, it's like, oh, it's definitively fixed. If not, you know, even if the meaning isn't right. fixed, then the words are there. You know, they're already on the, they've been, they've been sort of crafted and they've been put there. And mm -hmm. it's, it's two very different experiences. But when you read, when you're effectively like reading aloud something that's already been written, I think you're right. It's that kind of, it's, it's both not spontaneous and not perfected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, so it feels stilted and it feels like the worst of both worlds. Yeah. I agree. So I'm just flashing back to those adverts and they are just terrible. Sorry. Yeah, I, just, sorry, I can't watch them. one too long as well. As a, yes. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> um, Damn, you guys. It's late over there. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, but I do need to start winding toward down toward an ending in about 20 minutes. So I figured I'd just put the bug in there. Um, you, I don't want to keep you guys too late, and 
I've got another podcast to record in an hour and a half. And Whoa. You're a busy man. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> we could do our own poetry readings another time. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually something I thought about doing. I thought it had a solo show idea in mind that I thought about opening with a spoken poem and then realized I was an utter fucking coward and it was never going to happen. Yeah. I like to read my poems aloud, you know, but I am also very self-conscious of it. It seems really fucking arrogant. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very anxiety inducing to perform them out loud. I think uh-huh. especially when I did it in the context of slam, when you were literally being uh, the the part of slam that I like the least is being graded on a scale of one to ten, mm-hmm. and and I think Ooh. it's pretty universally disliked in slam that and to the point where there's actually a the saying mm-hmm. the point isn't the points the point is the poetry, but mm-hmm. I mean it's still a competitive event and so there are still points and so part of me is just like ah this sucks. <laughs> Do you guys read reviews? Your own? Yes. I think sometimes just to make sure that people are actually reading my books. Right. <laughs> Has anyone read it lately? Oh, it's still at that same number. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I, I mean, I quite like them because even the bad yeah. ones. Are like, yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. It's like, oh, somebody's read them. Like somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that is the reason I go there to see if somebody's read them lately because it's very slow with me. People, do, it, um, it seems to be a slow build with my books. But there we go. It's a long haul game, isn't it? <laughs> Well, that's I've said funnily enough. So Kev, Kev Harrison, he said that's um something similar the other day. So like any whether it's self-published or indie, um, it takes about 18 months for it to reach a kind of groundswell. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. basically 18 months from release is when you start to feel like it's actually reaching people. Interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying what I'm repeating. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to work out where that leaves me with some of mine. I mean, Bottled is probably, that's about 14 months now. Five turns was October, so that's still a relative baby, I suppose. I was going to say, well, I think one, one they're still building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm old and grey, when I'm in the ground. Mm. <laughs> in that cemetery next to our new house, when we eventually get there. <laughs> Stop, stop by and visit. <laughs> I do like a nice cemetery. I mean, obviously not. Welcome not in the valley. Turned in it, interred even. But, um, the, yeah, but just to look at, you know, from a distance. Well, that's where I go for walks occasionally down the road around the cemetery. I actually, it's quite cool. There's one round here that I tend to run, not, not round, but sort of through. And it's quite nice. I mean, one of the things that I do. I'm obviously not a rural person, but one of the things I am enjoying now I'm sort of adapting to living in the countryside is that there are some nice running routes and things like mm-hmm. cemeteries and, you know, sort of yeah. spaces that you don't necessarily get in urban areas. You get cemeteries in urban areas, but they're normally sandwiched between like a KFC and yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of, you know, like a nice, a nice cemetery with a bit of green space around it. It's surprisingly relaxing. I'm I'm fascinated with cemeteries and churches. I write about them a lot or inspire, you know, at least take inspiration from them, even though I'm hardcore, no religion heathen. Um, But I think it's, and that's where I love rich people because you have the best ones. And like (laughs) Catherine McCarthy and Bev and a few others send me photos from their walks when they walk because they do the same thing that 
Nat was talking about. They like to go to the old, you know, um, I don't know what you'd really call the style of architecture, but you know, it's that English kind that looks so pretentious, but really cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the gothic, gothic, mostly pseudo gothic. I would say <laughs> gothic. That's it. <laughs> um, no, you have fascinating places there. Um, some of the ruins and some of the churches, and I mean, and and people. It's like you know, you walk down my road. If someone's got a gate, it's four slats nailed to two cross slats. You know. Bev walks down her road and takes a picture of a gate and somebody spent six fucking months carving the motherfucker. You know? Oh, <laughs> that is. So it's not like where we are. It's a little crescent mixed council housing near an estate. But yeah, there's still a few ruins nearby. Yeah. And the Titanic sailed from here as well. So, <laughs> plain to plain. I think there's that thing. I mean, because I, I love the American architecture. I really love American architecture, actually, especially, you know, sort of West Coast, the sort of American Victorian houses, mm-hmm. which are not what I would think of as Victor- so, like English Victorian houses are much more sort of kind of brick terrace. But like, mm. I don't know, there's something there's something generally, I suppose, about European architecture that speaks of great age just because everything is so fucking old. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas necessity in the US it, you know, mostly isn't, you know, it's. Well. Yeah, that's the thing I always laugh about when I hear people talking, you know, um, Americans talking about um, their heritage. Like, what fucking heritage, man? It's over there across that ocean, dude. We've only been here for a few hundred years. You know, <laughs> like, they've been here for eons. <laughs> well, it tends, when I hear Americans often talking about heritage, it tends to be, you know, sort of people talking about Irishness. There's yeah. been a lot of that lately. Like people, sort of people who mm. are sort of sixth or seventh generation Irish American, yeah. but very attached to Ireland. But yeah. it's interesting actually. I was talking to a friend about this quite recently. Like, um, so Ireland, Ireland now as a country is obviously very different than it has been historically. Like it's gone through my understanding of it, anyways. It's gone through yeah. some quite rapid social change, and it's you know it's pretty liberal. It's pretty it's it's doing pretty well economically. Like it's it's in quite a good what I would consider quite a good place versus sort of where it's been ideologically previously. But I think the idea that people have of Ireland, you know, is this kind of very rural, quite traditional, quite religious enclave is yes. completely distinct from the actual lived experience right. of being in Ireland now. It's kind um, of like, you know, that Neil Gaiman thing with it, sorry to keep banging on about Neil Gaiman, but you know, in American gods, there are kind of the, yeah. the gods yeah. that originate from the place. And then the ones that appear when people migrate to right. other places. <laughs> And they're very different. It's kind of that, essentially. It's like there's an idea, Irish American, this friend mm-hmm. I was talking to you about, Irish American ideas of Irishness tend to be a lot more traditionalist than mm-hmm. actual Irish identity. Uh, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm Irish, raised by Irish people and Scottish people. So, you know, a little bit of both. And um, the first Irish people you described, I've never met those people. I've met a lot of really, really, really um, opinion, opinionated people. But I mean, as far as <laughs> as far as um, the you know the traditional rural Ireland and the religion and stuff like that, there are a few people that were still um, thought of thought of Ireland that way. But the vast majority of my family 
just, you know, roll times because they still had family over there that they talked to. I think it's that, isn't it? It's if you've Mm -hmm. still got a connection to the place and you can see what the place is still like. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Versus it becoming, yeah, kind of an idea in your head of a sort of an idealized place that has X, Y, and Z qualities. (laughs) Yeah. Like Portland, everybody thinks it's the most beautiful city in America and it's just because they don't live here. (laughs) Sadly, nobody thinks that of Leicester. Nor will they ever, I suspect. (laughs) I love the way you guys, I love the way you guys pronounce that word because... I hear people over here trying to pronounce it so many different ways, and it's fun. I'm surprised anybody over there tries to pronounce it, to be honest. I find it shocking whenever anyone... It, I suppose it's because of the football, isn't it? I know, like, the like yeah. the football has made it yeah. more of a global proposition. Yeah, I did. You know, whenever I um, see a word like that, I look up the sound of it, because I that's who I am. I have to know what that sounds like. First time, because I looked at the first time I looked at where I'm like, what the fuck, Leicester? <laughs> yeah. There's a place in um, Herefordshire called Lempster, mm-hmm. but that's Lempster, but that's Leo Minster. Mm-hmm. So that would yeah. be a good one to catch you all. <laughs> Lempster. Then, then there's like Worcestershire. Worcestershire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was born there. That's my, that's where I was born, Worcester in Worcestershire. <laughs> That's where, yeah, that's where I learned that just because it looks that way doesn't mean it sounds that way. It's the first time the first time a British <laughs> person said Worcestershire. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know where that's at. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole bunch of counties over here that just, there's no, mm. there's no etymological reason, I would say. I mean, there, there probably is historically, but there's no, there's no logic. Yeah. It just <laughs> the evolution of them has just taken them in that direction. I have no idea why Leicester is pronounced Leicester, and I am from Leicester. I should probably discover that. Hmm. Although I do know that the motto of the city is um, that the, the, the translates as always the same. And anecdotally, it's because the um, like Queen Elizabeth apparently came through Leicester and back in the day, looked around from her carriage and essentially said, like, this is a complete shithole. Let's improve this. <laughs> threw a bunch of money. Have you guys heard this? <laughs> like threw a bunch of money at it and then um, went back a few years later. The money had been just pissed away by various town officials. <laughs> just kind of shook her head and said, "Like Leicester, always the same." Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then we, That's in our amazing. infinite wisdom, adopted it as our city motto. <laughs> 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 uh, Sorry, a digression. No, um, that's amazing. <laughs> Sorry, let's talk books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Actually, I yeah. Let's let's. Uh, actually start working toward winding up um we've been going for how long this thing doesn't show me a timer good, good couple time. hours couple hours now and i know that i know that it's if Sunday. i don't it's like i'm at, I, uh, sorry i keep interrupting what is, I was it's sunday oh yeah it is <laughs> It is Sunday, isn't it? I thought I'm keep thinking it's Saturday. No, tomorrow's Sunday. We're from the future. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, that's the thing. You know, Sorry, the thing is, I just said that. I'm, just... <laughs> I'm up all night every night, so I, so I, most of the people I talk to, if I talk to anyone on social media, are British people and you know other people overseas in different areas. Um, so I'm usually pretty familiar. I mean, it's like if you say that 
you want to do something at nine o'clock, I know that you're talking about 2,100 hours over there, you know, and things like that. It's just little things that I calculate in my head because um, I've been such a night owl for so many fucking decades that most of my friends are British. <laughs> At least the ones or Australian, I presumably. I feel like. Yeah, or even yeah. further into the future, aren't they? Um, actually, yeah, a lot of Australian friends, and yeah, they're even farther in the future. I, I like that, though. You know, who knew all you had to do to time travel was move to a different country? But uh, what I was getting, what I was getting at in my very, very roundabout way is that um, would you guys like to close with telling us about any, telling us any news that you have or anything coming up? And Eric, if you had questions that I stomped on, feel free. We still have 15 minutes. I I don't think I have any other ones. We covered good territory, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I do. So um, what about uh, you you other two. <laughs> Not too fast. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess so. The, the the book I've most recently released is Salvation right. Spring, which is the weird Western um, that may or may not mislead people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, trying to think what else. I mean, this is so the thing I'm writing at the moment is the um, the novella thing that I mentioned um, and a bunch of stuff with E. Um, I don't know what the news I have for it. I think that's um, it for me. And yeah, the thing about uh, T.C. Parker is that she hasn't written a bad book. Um, oh. I don't think she could. Um, just judging by the, what I've read of her so far. And the same with Steph. Um, it's your turn, Stephanie. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I've got the collection coming out Midsummer's Day as the wheel turns. Uh, stories set in the Five Turns world. Um, got a couple of short stories coming out this year in the Weird Tales anthology, which you are in, Shane. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Steve Vasalo's editing, and there's a lot of um, big name poets in there, a lot of indie writers. So that should be good. Um, what else is there? Far from Home anthology. I would like to throw in here, I forgot to say that I'm over at Horror Tree. Um, I edit their Trembling with Fear uh, flash scene uh, each week with Stuart. But I also do an indie bookshelf post there. And if anybody's got a new book or anything coming out, I just put it on there. It's a bit of free promotion for people. So just get in touch with a book cover and a link and we can put it up, up there, sort of leading up to publication uh, so I do a few bits behind the scenes at Horror Tree. Um, what else? Uh, I'm going to try and write some novellas for Silver Shamrock soon. And I'm working on Reborn, which is the follow-up to Five Turns of the Wheel. Ah, nice. <laughs> Eric, and I'm, I'm going to make... Go ahead. Say, say it again. I'm sorry, I was talking to myself. I just say I write poems as well. There, there is something... Else, yeah, there's a few things in that coming out as well but that's for another day yeah um yeah i was gonna say i started to blurt something out and then change my mind because it'll jinx it but um sorry guys that's totally vague and that's all you get oh come Um, on (laughs) oh i was just gonna just gonna mention that uh, stephanie and i are working on a 
were kind of speculating on a pro project at this point uh, yes. in time. Yeah, yeah, so, that's, that, that will happen. We are sort yep. of bouncing ideas around at the moment. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely. an organic creature that will creep across the world. <laughs> uh, very organic, but that's the only way I write. I don't, uh, my, it's impossible for me to plan because if I outline or plan anything, uh, by the time I'm done, that was my creativity. I think yeah. it's genuine um, yeah. if you don't plan sometimes. I know people say, oh, you should plan, you should plot, you should do this, 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 but I, yep. I can't. Um, that's, that's not me. I just make it up as I go along. Yes. <laughs> I still feel as though I'm breaking every rule in the book and I don't know all the jargon and all that, but I just write stories and I write poems yeah. like most of us. So. I, yeah, I don't know most of the jargon, especially with fiction. Um. <laughs> Um, and life in general, I don't understand these jargon and being queer too. Like, who knew there were 700 million kinds of queer in the world? More every day. <laughs> yeah, it's always just uh, so. Well, so so, how do you identify? Um, well, you which which day? <laughs> so, um, I, I had like three of us talking at once. I didn't catch anything. I just said we are all who we are. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's a deep and meaningful ending. There you go. Next time we do this, and there will be a next time, um, I'll, I'll use video so that we have the visual cues. Um, Wave hands. And oh, wait, there is something. Sorry, there's one last thing that yeah. <laughs> um, you haven't mentioned, but I just realized this. That the, the Stokers are about to be announced. Oh, my God. Nominated. Oh, Sorry, this, yeah, this, this needs to be discussed. Yeah, it really does. Stokers are about to be announced. Uh, Haley Piper's in there. Laurel Hightower's in the running. Todd Kiesling. Um, I don't have a good enough memory to tell you everybody, but a bunch of your favorite fucking authors are in there. But also Inkheist. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're in the running. Are we? You are. You're you you best podcast, aren't you? That's true. Is that for the horror? Uh, this is for, horror. This is horror. Oh shit! I thought it was a Stoker. No, this is this is horror awards. Okay, in that case, my point is entirely moot, and I retract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, really thought it was a Stoker for some reason, but um, I suppose it would make sense that the Stokers wouldn't be nominating a podcast on reflection. <laughs> I just checked. They, they don't have a podcast category yet. No, they I, don't. No, that would that would be my bad. <laughs> well, they didn't know they had, but that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this is have. fake news. <laughs> I, um, yeah, nevertheless, the Stokers are about to be announced. So, yeah, mm -hmm. obviously, like lots of people that we all know and love are in the various categories. Yes. So good luck to them. <laughs> Yeah, I can't even say which one I'd like to win because I like so many of them that it's just I just have to sit back and congratulate the winners. Oh you know? god, the best novella one yeah. is just a nightmare. All yeah. of them are amazing. Like right. Oh. Like a true crime and um, crossroads and the worm in his, you know, or the cape, blah, blah, whatever. Haley's book. What's All the of name them. Of that? There's not a single it's woman. It's yeah. women's things, isn't it? There's just there's yeah. not a single one where I'm looking at it and thinking like this is. I just want them all to win. Yeah, I know. Same here. It's like the whole category gets gets an award. Um, 
and there was something else. Oh, uh, Sadie Hartman's uh, summer reading series will be starting at the end of this month. Um, and that's really, really awesome way to get to know authors that you're unfamiliar with and hear their work read and, um, you know, find some new shit to read. And it's a good way for poor people like me who live on a poet's salary to get you to buy some shit and buy me a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm quite excited about that because there's also, you know, for Sadie's birthday, there was, yeah, the, the video readings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, um, it just, yeah, that's, I, so I watched some of the ones from the previous years and they're just awesome. Yeah, they um, are. I, I did one. I, I did one for a, maybe a week or two ago, and I realise now that I could have done a better job. Having <laughs> 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 seen how well people did in previous years, I yeah, I wish I had. I I would, yeah, I think I would freeze up if I tried to look at what people did last year. I yeah. saw them, but you know, I don't have a memory, so I'm safe from them right now. <laughs> <laughs> but if I look, I'll never get to my reading, and I'm supposed to do it tonight. <laughs> Oh shit! I thought you'd done yours already. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was waiting for, for permission from some of the publishers and editors because uh, vast majority of the stuff I'm reading from isn't out yet, but has been accepted. So I had to make sure that was copacetic. And mm-hmm. editors, editors don't don't give a shit about your schedule. They're too fucking busy for you, so you end up waiting for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but yeah, there was one. There was one ha- one hanging out. I had to wait for permission on, and now I'm good to go. And you know, that's not going to be even close to the most terrifying thing I've done this day, you guys. Um, no matter how ineptly I did it, <laughs> <laughs> I a it will not be inept. And B, we'll never know because I suspect neither of us will ever watch our own backwards. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We'll never know. No, no. I Upload it, send it off into the world. It's as if it never was. That's, uh, that's what I do with all of our podcasts. I can't, well, I can't watch them. Well, for one thing, I, I listen to parts of them over and over and over again while I'm editing. So I, I'm so sick of our voices now. Mm, it's like I hated my voice when we started. Now I hate Rich, Rich's fucking voice too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you, man, about my own voice for yeah. editing Chris Morsel's one. Like, jeez, can this guy shut yeah. up? Like, <laughs> right? I have uh, Brennan Lafaro, Lafaro coming on um, in a few weeks, and he, uh, um, he's the guy who dubbed me the profane Mr. Rogers when he heard my voice. <laughs> it made me like it a little bit better. That's the, yeah, that's kind of an honor. I like that. <laughs> right? I'll take it. Although I did have Mr. Rogers' photo as my profile pic for a while, and somebody said my language just really was un- disrespectful to him, and I felt bad, <laughs> so I took it off. <laughs> like, well, fuck him then. No. <laughs> uh, well, you guys, I love all three of you um, from the bottom of my heart. I do want to have you back very soon. Um, Eric, I will have you back very soon. Uh, and um, I want to bring uh, Steph back too in a few Yay. weeks if you want to. 
Oh, um, not Nat. We don't. We don't like Nat. But... No, that's no, fair. No, no. <laughs> um, no, you guys. Michael are in. All, all, all three of you are welcome anytime. If you want a guest host, if you need a guest slot, I can't say anytime on the guest slot because we're booked into next year. But I can say on the guest host slot. That's just damn near always open. So. <laughs> And we'd Thank love you. to have you. The problem is with Steph and, and Nat is that they're, by the time we record, it's so damn late. <laughs> to be fair, actually, I think I've now evolved beyond sleep. I was quite tired about 10 o'clock, but I think now I'm just... Oh, that's exactly like me. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like I've pushed through and now it's a new day. So. <laughs> oh, see, we're, we're right there at the beginning of a fresh new day for me when we started this. I just got up. That's, so, uh, how, um, that's how much of a night owl <laughs> I do my writing at night and I always have and I can't do it any other time for some reason not well but, uh, anyway I digress um, you guys are all sitting there going when the fuck is he going to shut up and get us out of here <laughs> uh, if you can go uh, watch the stokers and congratulate the winners and those who don't win because they're all fucking great it's true all awesome and um check out all three of these authors that i have tonight um eric raglan stephanie ellis and uh tc parker um i keep just damn near stumbling on that one because it's like who's that oh yeah no i do as well <laughs> i do as well seriously it's really confusing having a season. <laughs> like don't do it if anyone's listening don't do it yeah <laughs> um so yeah uh Love you all. You guys read their books, um, buy their books, and I mean, hell, buy their books even if you don't read them. But um, you're screwing yourself if you don't, because these all three very talented people. Thank you, Shane. Yep. Thank you, and thank you for having us. It's been awesome. Yeah, it has been. It's been it's been a blast, and I appreciate you guys tolerating my uh, little bit of extra divergence today. But uh, oh, <laughs> I thought this was a really fun conversation. So it's been awesome. It I genuinely, yeah. I know everybody's got to go, but mm-hmm. I now I've evolved beyond sleep slightly selfishly. I can push on through till dawn. So. <laughs> See, this is how I that's how I work. You now, fuck it, too late to sleep now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, cool. Uh, thanks for listening. And is somebody gonna hang the fucking thing? <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha